we're being asked to decide between competing views of racial harmony. One that either focuses on the colorblind ideal and racial equality, or the other which is about obvious difference, implicit bias, and the mission of equity. And your schools cannot do both. We don't have to choose between the colorblind world or the world of racial essentialism. There's this other world where you can believe that there are certain things like redlining and the failure for us to do reconstruction properly and all the other inequalities that play out to this day, while also not believing that we should rank order kids based on their privilege in elementary schools. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta, and The Lost Debate team is in the second week of a two-week break, so I've once again asked two friends to fill in for Corey and Ricky this week. And just like last week, I'm outnumbered ideologically, so the same disclaimer to my progressive friends who are progressive like me, you're going to hear a lot of opinions that you may disagree with, but that's the whole point of this show. And our guest co-hosts are once again Liz Wolf, the associate editor and writer for Reason, and Stephen Kent, a political writer, media commentator, and author of How the Force Can Fix the World. Liz and Steven, welcome to the Lost Debate Show. Nice to be back. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. On today's show, yet another educational controversy from the Sunshine State. Is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis training teachers to push right-wing politics and junk history in schools? We also discussed the final decision of the Supreme Court's term, one that many people think could have more far-reaching effects than the repeal of Roe. Then we turn to the great migration of the 21st century, from California to Austin. Liz walks us through a recent piece she wrote detailing the promise and potential pitfalls awaiting these fiscal refugees. But up first, it's Bezos versus Biden part two. On Saturday, Joe Biden demanded on Twitter that companies managing gas pumps decrease soaring fuel prices at, quote, a time of war and global peril. He added, quote, bring down the price you're charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now. Later that day, Bezos tweeted that inflation was, quote, far too important a problem for the White House to keep making statements like this. He added, quote, it's either straight ahead misdirection or deep misunderstanding of the basic market dynamics. This was not the first heated exchange between Bezos and the White House. Bezos lashed out in May at the Biden administration over the failed Build Back Better bill, which he believed could exacerbate inflation. Guys, Who's right here? I think it's pretty clear that Biden is engaging in bullying and grandstanding for political gain. Uh, it makes me kind of sad to see because I, I had hoped for better from him. But I mean, if you actually look at the economics of gas stations, some 60% of them are owned by individuals or families. A lot of the times these owners are immigrants to this country. Uh, these are small time entrepreneurs. The reason why you see like the Exxon sign above a gas station is not because it's owned by the company Exxon, but because that individual proprietor has contracted out with Exxon. So in the same way that you walk into a bar and you see you know, a, a Miller Lite sign or a, a Coors sign, and that doesn't mean the bar is owned by those beer companies, it means that they have some sort of deal with them and they sell those products. That's exactly the same thing that's happening. My colleague Eric Baim has written about this extensively at Reason. That's exactly the same thing that's happening with gas stations. And so for Biden to sort of attack these these small time entrepreneurs and, and tell them, direct them to sell gas at cost really misunderstands the economics of these businesses that are like a huge part of the backbone of the American economy. So it's wrong for Biden to do this. 
Yeah, you know, just yesterday, by coincidence, I was reading this book on the life and times of Cicero. He is this, uh, you know, one of the last great men of Rome uh, before it fell into total autocracy. And he observed in the book this writing by this previous Roman named Titus Livius. And this guy had said, men are only clever at shifting blame from their own shoulders to those of others. And then I saw this topic uh, for the show and I just thought, you know, this is pretty much it. Like, this is the timeless frustration that people have with politicians. And frankly, there is nothing that I loathe more than a leader who is refusing to take responsibility and level with people. It's why I could not stand Trump. And it is why I'm incredibly disappointed as somebody who happily pulled the lever for Joe Biden in 2020, that he's just governing with like this disconnected sense of reality. He's governing like he's a 23-year-old political activist who doesn't actually know how these things work. I really expected this guy to come in and be the adult in the room. That's sort of what he promised in the last election. Uh, and this way of governing, this sort of, you know, just beating his chest again at small business owners and gas stations when he knows better. I know he knows that this is not how it works. That's really, really concerning to me. So I'm just sort of befuddled like Bezos is looking at this guy and wondering, where is Joe Biden? <laughs> Well, he could also be a lot more politically shrewd about it. This is all kind of obvious and easy to dissect. And I think you see this with Biden's tack that he's been taking. You see this a little bit with Sanders and you see this a little bit with Elizabeth Warren, where, you know, when it when when people when customers are hurting from high inflation and high prices, one of the approaches that these politicians, uh, especially Biden, could be taking is to say, hey, look, when the pandemic hit, it was an unprecedented time of economic shutdown. And so we did what we thought was best by pumping stimulus checks into the economy, trying to boost Americans' pocketbooks, trying to give them some more cushion. We didn't know how long this would last. And we thought that that would be the fiscally prudent way of handling this. Parts of that backfired. And now we're dealing with the second order impacts of that. And here are the things that the Federal Reserve is going to be doing to mitigate those impacts. That would be the sensible adult approach. I would still somewhat disagree with that because I'm a libertarian who faults the federal government for sending out those checks in the first place. But at least that would be honest and true. And that's sort of the approach that people like Larry Summers, who's very left-leaning, have taken when explaining why we're in such economic turmoil. So as much as I want to defend Biden here, I have to agree that he's wrong both on substance and the politics. He's kind of playing the role like half-assed version of a populist, but that's not really who he is. We're talking about the senator from Delaware who in his tenure in the United States Senate was one of the most corporate-friendly senators that we've had. And so for him, he's just not selling it well. I think that there's a demagogue out there with the talent to sell the kind of arguments that Biden's trying to do here, but it's just not landing. That said, he has done some things within his power to bring down the prices of gasoline and oil in the country. He's tapped the strategic reserve for oil. He's eased rules around E15 gas. He's called for a suspension of the federal gas tax. And you know, much to my chagrin, he's been kissing Saudi Arabia's ass, trying to get them probably to increase supply. So I think that he's doing some things. It's just not enough and not enough to make a dent in the oil and gasoline markets, which is why I think he's so frustrated. I have a question for both y'all actually, because my daughter was asking me the other day while we were driving around town, you know, with two gas stations on different sides of the street, why does one have their gas, you know, for 445 and the other one on the same street going in the same direction? 
is you know closer to five dollars, an entire twenty five cents higher. How does that price setting work? Because I know that they they have some flexibility to try to compete on a street level, but for the most part, the market sets the price. I know this is a weird thing to say, but the Dallas Fed actually had a really good paper on this. It's only four or five pages. You should absolutely read it, in which they break down the question of where the price markup's coming from. And they basically talk about the fact that these end sellers, these gas stations, are dealing with a host of factors that they price in at the end stage of gasoline, whether it's the expected next price for gasoline, like whatever they think that next shipment is going to come in at, federal and state taxes, uh, other markups like delivery fees and credit card fees. And what the Dallas Fed says is, if you look at the math around these recent price increases due to the war in Ukraine... There's actually room for both sides of this argument to take something away from it. And so they niftily created some charts saying, all right, pre-invasion to the peak of gas prices in the middle of the invasion, how did gas prices increase relative to the supply? And they basically said if 59% of the price of gasoline at the pump comes from crude oil, so big oil, then you would expect that a 34% increase in the price of crude oil, which is what we saw during that peak from the Ukraine war, would result in a 20% increase of gas prices at the pump if everything was moving according to supply. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw a 20% increase at that peak from the Ukraine war. So then they looked and said, well, if they're increasing prices relative to the price of crude oil when it's on the upside, what are they doing on the downside, which we've seen recently when crude oil prices have decreased? And what they showed was that there's been a 22% decline from the peak, at least as of the time that the Dallas Fed wrote their paper, which should have been a 13% decline at the price in the pumps, but we only saw a 6% decrease. So what the Dallas Fed was saying is actually there is some evidence for what the White House is saying in that the the end sellers are capturing the upside of the price of crude oil and increasing prices accordingly, but when it decreases, they're not moving commensurate with the decrease. But as I'll get to later, they don't necessarily say it's price gouging. No, that's that's remarkable. I mean, that's remarkable to hear kind of broken down in that way. And it, it kind of speaks exactly to one of the three main things that the Biden administration has, has done to make this situation far more dubious. And this goes from our currency, this goes to gas, this goes to the looming specter of a recession. The expectations game is everything. I mean, these energy companies and gas stations, when they're looking down the road at what they're 2023, 2024, and again, some of these really high up level investors are looking a decade down the road at what kind of money they're going to make and whether or not they're going to invest in the industry. And the kind of rhetoric that you see coming from the Biden administration and Democrats at large is one that discourages investment. I think to some degree, this is a really, it's kind of a sad example of a phenomenon that's increasingly common on the left and something that I get no pleasure from reporting, which is this, this sense that cause and effect are disconnected, the sense that it's it's so difficult for, for many people on the left to see what unintended consequences might arise from the policies they're pushing. I was um, on The Hills Rising, a, a TV show a few weeks ago, and I was sparring with somebody who was talking about the degree to which it's hard for people in the US to basically figure out 
the state of gas prices in the future because of foreign policy issues, because of the Russian war in Ukraine, and the fact that we might have some amount of supply problems. Uh, we've even seen this, Ravi, you mentioned this with Biden talking about uh, going visiting Saudi Arabia and visiting the Middle East, and sort of trying to, to some degree, sure up our commitments there. But one of the ways that you could mitigate all of this, and I'm not a protectionist type person, I'm not a buy American type person, but one way you could have mitigated this is by giving more oil drilling leases or by uh, building the Keystone Pipeline, which was something tons of environmentalists within the US oppose quite consistently. And you need years and years of lead time for that. So now it's too late. You couldn't exactly swing into action and you know, start construction over on the Keystone Pipeline. But that would be something that we could have done years ago that would have mitigated this situation and alleviated some of the pain that everyday and average Americans are feeling now. And so I just kind of look at that and I think like, how do we make public policy decisions that look forward and, and consider what types of predicaments we'll be in in 2024 or 2025? And how do we try to make our politics a little bit more connected to those outcomes, a little bit more forward thinking. For whatever reason, people are really struggling with this right now. I mean, they just keep throwing stuff at the wall to try to avoid this, like the gas cards, the gift cards idea that the Biden administration was ruminating about just a month ago until Nancy Pelosi, remarkably, was the one who sort of struck it down and got them to back off of this. So again, just a lot of disconnect from reality. I love that solution, by the way. It was like the solution to inflation is to give people more money again. It's just it's amazing. To bring it back to this narrow question, right, of who's to blame about gas prices, there's a couple of things happening here that economists are looking at. One is it could be price gouging, for sure. Now, I don't think the evidence necessarily is dispositive on that. But there are a couple other things that could be going on. One is they could be recapping lost margins, both because there's a lot of evidence that on the upswing, the gas stations aren't quick to recap they basically sometimes go right up until the highest level of price. They try to keep things as low as possible to keep demand high there. The second is that there's an expectation that these prices are going to go back up over the summer, especially once you start hitting hurricane season. And so I think a lot of these gas stations don't want to preemptively raise the prices. I uh, sorry, decrease the prices. And then the second is that the next thing is like there's seasonal demand. This is the summer, right? And so the the price pressures are very different. And sometimes it's just regional. Like Dallas, for instance, the prices of gas at the pumps actually did move down in proportion to the decrease in crude oil, whereas in Phoenix, they didn't. The difference in Phoenix is that they were relying upon gas coming from the West Coast refineries, which had some unexpected shutdowns. So sometimes this shit is really complicated, I guess is what I'm saying. And it, it's really important not to demagogue issues when you're talking about people's livelihoods at stake. Fundamentally, Biden is demonstrating a disinterest in the plights of small business owners. You know, these families running these uh, convenience stores, these sole individuals doing so. When you look at the other things that the Biden administration has done, they're also going to be eating into these people's profits. So Biden is not only suggesting that these entrepreneurs sell gas at cost with no profit generated, but at the same time, he's instructing the, the FDA to crack down on vaping products, for example. And one thing we know, you know, we could pass moralistic judgments on it all we want. But one thing we know about convenience store profit margins is that a significant chunk of sales comes from selling cigarettes and vaping products. Uh, another chunk comes from selling food and booze. And so you can attempt to socially engineer people's choices all you want. But one thing that Biden's administration and his executive agencies really need to reckon with at the end of the day is the fact that there will be unintended consequences and there will be entrepreneurs who are hurt by this. 
And at some point, he has to contend with that as opposed to continuously passing the buck. Well, there's some good news on the horizon as we wrap this up. Uh, there's an economist who has a really good substack. His name's Noah Smith. I think his substack is called the No Opinion Substack. And he's projecting, he's looking at a lot of data that suggests that inflation really is starting to ramp down and decelerate right now. And he talks about how the markets are predicting a slowdown over the summer. And there are five major causes here. One is falling freight rates. Two is falling commodity prices. Three is easing rents. Four is massively dropping prices of chips and GPUs. And then rising retail inventories. And if this sounds familiar to longtime listeners, this is exactly what we were talking about when inflation was on the upside. It was like these all these data points were heading in the opposite direction when inflation was getting out of control. So that could be good news for everybody, for consumers, for Biden and all that. I do think the political damage here will be long-lasting, even if there is an easing of inflation. We also saw reports today of oil prices actually beginning to take a little bit of a dive. And so that's interesting because that might be reflected in gas prices that people are paying at the pump. But some economists are also worried that it's an indicator of a recession coming. So it'll be really interesting. I think a lot of people are curious to see what the CPI inflation report will be for this month, but then also whether perhaps some of the funkiness and the wonkiness with uh, what these indicators are doing indicates a recession, because that could potentially, what we very well could have is a slightly more optimistic CPI report, but also issues with unemployment numbers and things that indicate that we're going into a time of recession. You have this catch-22 where you have low unemployment, which is generally really good, high savings, also really good, but then you have inflation, which is obviously tied to those two things. Now, on the opposite side, when you get inflation under control, one of the drivers of, of actually lower inflation could be, as you're saying, Liz, higher unemployment, lower savings rate, which is also bad and is in many ways a, a, an indication of a recession. No good options here. And Ravi, it's worth noting that those those really positive numbers from the mill of COVID lockdowns and you know most of that stretch from 2020 through the end of 2021 about savings uh, numbers increasing and people pocketing more money, those are all now reversing. The Wall Street Journal was out just today with really bleak numbers of the amount of borrowing and debt uh, that people are now taking on past the first quarter of 2022. So a lot of those grounds have been lost. All right. Well, let's turn to Florida, where some educators claim that a new state civics initiative designed to prepare students to be virtuous citizens is infused with a Christian and conservative ideology. This comes after a three-day training session in Broward County last week, part of Governor Ron DeSantis's Civics Literacy Excellence Initiative. In the words of the Tampa Bay Times, quote, trainers told Broward teachers that the nation's founders did not desire a strict separation of state and church. They downplayed the role of the colonies and later the United States in the history of slavery in America and push a judicial theory favored by legal conservatives like DeSantis that requires people to interpret the Constitution as the framers intended it, not as a living, evolving document, according to three educators who attended the training. End quote. Stephen, DeSantis's allies through the Stop Woke Act and other initiatives have purported to want to stop ideological and partisan bias in schools. Does this training violate their own standards? I want to express that like 
I agree in principle, right? I don't want schools and classrooms to be battlegrounds. Again, when I was coming up through school, I didn't feel like I was in a war zone. Uh, it definitely feels like as a parent, my children, uh, my, their school is one today. And I don't like that. But maybe let's, let's look at the historical nuance question. Because in reading that article in, what was the source that you sent? Yeah, the Tampa Bay Times. The Tampa, the Tampa Bay Times. I was going through there and I, I took a note of four different things that these teachers basically um, griped about to the press after they came out of this optional training that they actually get paid to go to if they choose to go. Yeah, but pause. The optional, though, is still the government's hand, right? The government's paying for teachers to go to this training and offering a $700 stipend. I fully understand that, but re-education camps are not things that you go to by choice. They're things that you're roped into or there's uh, repercussions against going. So I just want to highlight these four things that are in the piece. <laughs> Steven, explain that comment. What do you mean by the re-education camp comment? Because I thought that- No, I just because because the, the tone of these conversations being had by the Tampa Bay Times and these teachers is basically like they are going and being sort of roped into some sort of exercise and re-education and propagandizing for these schools, when in fact, they are just going to an optional training in which they get a stipend. So I, I just, again, I don't have much sympathy for the idea that they're being cajoled into something uh, when it is not mandatory and it's not going to cost them their job to opt out. So- Taking the conjoling argument out, the government is paying for teachers. And by the way, the lost is the context here in which it's DeSantis coordinating with Hillsdale College, which is a conservative Christian institution, and the Bill of Rights Institute, which is a Koch-founded and funded organization to create these standards. Never mind the text of the Stop Woke Act, which we've covered as a disaster for people who believe in free speech. Like paying teachers to go to this, to me, is the government's hand violating the Constitution. Sounds like there are third-party organizations putting up that money, are they not? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, right? The government has spent $6 million on this already. So there's, there's definitely government money at issue here. There are four factual statements that teachers identified to the Tampa Bay Times in this article that if you take them on their own, they are true. But they're not absolute truths because when it comes to history and civics, there are these things called counterfactuals, like the broader side of the story. So teachers complained about this that they were told the founders expected religion to be promoted because they believed it to be essential to civic virtue. Without virtue, another slide stated, citizens become licentious and become subject to tyranny. This is a factual statement. <laughs> okay, that is true. The one problem that you run into with all of these statements and these slides is that the founders were not a monolith. They argued they argued with one another. Like are you talking about Benjamin Rush or Benjamin Franklin because they didn't agree. The second statement, the state said that two-thirds of the founding fathers were slave owners, but emphasized that even those that held slaves did not defend the institution. This is true, but there's a counterfactual. Facilitators emphasize that most enslaved people in the country were born into slavery and that the colonies didn't buy nearly as many enslaved people during the transatlantic slave trade as had been portrayed. This is true. The point that I want to make here is that these are all narrative choices that we have to make in the public sphere. 
The last thing that I mentioned, or actually that I failed to mention, was that there's one slide in there where they say that 4% of enslaved peoples in the Western Hemisphere were in colonial America, and that the number only increased through birth. But you could also look at that same statistic and say that there were 4 million enslaved people among 31 million people in the US. So if you go in one direction, you say, well, the United States only had 4% of the slave population in the world, or say there was 4 million. Those are two narrative choices. One is, let's think proportionally about this. The United States was really like a, not an outlier in the world in terms of slavery. And the other one is to really emphasize the number of human lives caught up in this travesty. And those are, again, those are choices that you make about what kind of impression you want to leave on children when you're teaching. I do also kind of want to bolster your point a little bit, Stephen. I am being a little quiet in this conversation because I think, Stephen, you're, you're a parent and you sort of have been following these battles pretty closely. And so I really appreciate your perspective here and think you have much more to offer than I do. But I would just also add like Bill of Rights Institute is that it's Bill of Rights and Hillsdale that are the entities leading this training. These are two <laughs> entities that I mean, obviously, the material should be judged on its merit. But Bill of Rights Institute is something that's dedicated to civic education and to like, it's, it's all about like dorky con law stuff. And there aren't any, I, at least to my knowledge, there are not equivalents that have left leaning biases that do that same type of mission. And so I think it's important to instead of just sort of, you know, waving the flag of like, oh, Bill of Rights Institute, Coke, and, you know, Hillsdale, Christian, I think it's worth noting that like these are entities that have really, really strong um, civic education and constitutional law emphases. And I welcome having that from the left as well. But it's almost like faulting Federalist Society for being professional networking for conservative jurists. And it's like, well, professional networking for, for future jurists that can really help people develop over the course of their careers is something that lots of people might want. And we ought to have as many of those types of little institutions as possible. And it's frankly a bummer that we don't have those coming from the left. But I'm a little skeptical of Bill of Rights Institute as this like incredibly biased GOP type organization, just from what I know of them. I behoove anybody listening to this to go actually pull up the Hillsdale College curriculum, read through it, particularly go to the middle school American history curriculum. I looked through it the other day. And you tell me whether this is biased or not. It's just up to you when you read it. Well, everything's biased, right? Because we're making narrative choices and curriculum choices no matter what. It's a judgment call. Like, I think we're all sort of, it operates in that sticky, awkward, squishy zone where we all have different interpretations about it, right? Now, they developed the curriculum, the Hillsdale College, for Trump when he was trying to create his 1776 or whatever it was called. This is not an institution that is like neutral here. And I'm trying to apply to DeSantis his own standard here. In their previous Board of Education policy, which I believe is still standing, this is from June of 2021. This is what they said, quote, you may not share personal views or attempt to indoctrinate or persuade students to a particular point of view. Now, Stephen, what you read, some of it is still inaccurate. To say founders expected religion to be promoted is still inaccurate. If it said some founders expected religion to be promoted, that would be accurate. But as it's reading, I think we're being so generous to them and lowering the bar to them to say, oh, you know what? Everything's polarized. Everybody's a little biased. So therefore, let's give these people who deserve no benefit of the doubt whatsoever. And I could read you text from the Stop Woke Act. Would you be happy if they just changed the slide to say some? Would that make you like literally 
actually say, all right, this is fully endorsable and I want that in there. I'm saying that particular sentence, if you added some, now we can go through the way that they're portraying the founders and their views on slaves also, which I think as a student of history, you know, is also way more complicated than they're describing it. And they're choosing- Yeah, these are half-truths. They're deciding, well, I, I like to think of half-truths as falsehoods if they're presented in a certain kind of way. This is one of the issues that I, I have with this debate as it pertains to public schools, is that we have different tiers of education in our lives that we go through. And I, I just look at the current state of public school teachers and history, history teachers and civics teachers as wanting to do it all in their purview. Like maybe they wanted to be college professors and they failed and now they're teaching a fifth grade history class and th they just think that they need to do it all and that it's their responsibility. It's not. It's not. This is the introduction to your government your country's history, your state's history. And at some point, you do have to be disciplined about like, all right, we're going to lay the foundations in these grades, and then things get more complicated. And you know what? When you go to college, your reality gets shattered uh, by the amount of stuff that you really learn about this country and its history. And frankly, I thought this was an okay pipeline for information education. When did we have like a lack of liberals and people who believed in institutionalized racism in this country because they just went to public school and they went to college? The previous Board of Education guidance that I've mentioned bans the teaching of structural racism in K-12 schools in Florida. Now, to me, I don't, I have like all sorts of views of structural racism. I, I think that, you know, redlining, for instance, mm -hmm. is a clear cause of it, but I don't think that, for instance, standardized testing is, right? Now, and so I think that, mm -hmm. and I would want to leave it to the teacher as much as possible to make that decision. I think banning it is wholly inappropriate. I think I, I just, I always go back to Stephen's sort of point, which I think could be summarized as, you know, this is, we don't need exhaustive education. This is not exhaustive at these younger age levels. Yeah, but all of the, the omissions are in one direction and they say it out loud. So this is what they said. You may not define American history as anything other than the creation of a new nation based on the universal principles of the Declaration of Independence. And Good. I can go it's a government school. I mean, are we trying to promote them to be hostile towards their own nation's founding? Like, this is one of the areas where... I thought we were libertarians who we were just talking about in the last session where we're skeptical of the flag waving, yada, yada, yada. This is where the national conservatives have gotten to me a little bit. Like there, there's no such thing as a, a neutral sphere when it comes to public education. And so I just, why are we not like thinking about like what kind of citizenry do we want to raise? And is teaching kids the opposite of what you just described that like, you know, again, 16, 1667, project. I don't believe in teaching the opposite of it. But these are the choices that they're giving us. Fuck those choices, though. We're reasonable people. But who's giving us these choices, right? Who's the one who's doing this? It's a mixture of politicians like DeSantis, who frankly suck on stuff like this. And honestly, it's a mixture of public school teachers, which for whatever reason, like, I am so surprised that this has become such a culture war issue. Because when I think of the types of people who gravitate toward teaching eight-year-olds, I'm I'm kind of shocked by the degree to which they really want to enter this like heated political realm. I'm kind of shocked by the degree to which they make these TikTok videos that they seemingly want to go viral. You're watching too much TikTok. No, I mean I, it's because <laughs> it's because I've been following the libs of TikTok controversy, and I'm fascinated by what is bullshit versus what is legitimate of that. But with a lot of these teachers, I think I think we should have a little bit of like baseline skepticism and distaste and distrust 
for the fact that like they're supposed to be there because they like like to teach reading and because they think eight year olds are sweet. Right. And yet they seem to be really. But they do. There are plenty maybe, of teachers. I want to defend maybe, some teachers. But they also yeah. seem to be really into DEI type stuff. And I'm sort of confused by like, well, wait a second. What did you think this industry was about? And why are you attempting to sort of force it into this different realm that formerly it hadn't been in? And I think it was probably better when it wasn't like that. I'll carve out my my corner here as the true libertarian on this podcast right now is that I think I don't like forcing or even using government funds to incentivize the 1619 Project. We've covered the flaws of that. I also don't love this either because I think it is you're, you're putting your hand on the facts and, and putting only the facts that fit your narrative in is my interpretation of this. I think kids can handle the fact that the the founders were very complicated on the question of slavery. And I also think that as much as I hate teachers unions, I think there are plenty of amazing teachers out there who deserve as much autonomy as possible because the more stuff that you put on this, John White in Louisiana did a really great presentation and I think it was AEI a couple of years ago on this, just the sheer amount of regulation that come down on these schools that teachers have to worry about to me. I'm, this is why I'm the true libertarian. I want them to have less regulation, less having to think about the vague statute, like the stuff I quoted to you, like teachers aren't lawyers. And even a lawyer, I have a degree from an Ivy League law school and I don't know what the hell to do with a lot of these statutes. You know what I'm saying? It's too much for these teachers. I generally, like I want to be like you in this moment, Ravi, because I feel like I always was. And honestly, like I look in the mirror at the way that I've been feeling about this issue for the past year and I don't I don't recognize myself. And it like actually upsets me because I just don't feel like I ever believed that this was a fight that we needed to have. Every public school that I ever went to growing up in the good old 90s and early 2000s, we know we we heard the history and then the teacher asked us to discuss you know, do you think that there's more to the story? You know, what do you think, you know, what do you think also is, is tough about the issue of slavery and our founding? Like we had those conversations and it just, it's bizarre to me that the discourse in 2022 acts like that never happened. In the top of the article for the Tampa Bay Times, it says, in Florida, DeSantis and the Republican-led legislature have pushed policies that limit what schools can teach about race. Everyone supports limits. Of course, we want limits on what's being taught. We don't want them to be teaching race essentialism in the direction of actual like white supremacy in schools that doesn't comport with our values. So there are such things as red lines and red lines are good and must be drawn. In this case, we're being asked to decide, in my opinion, between competing views of racial harmony, one that either focuses on the colorblind ideal and racial equality or the other, which is about obvious difference, implicit bias, and the mission of equity. And your schools cannot do both. Your public institutions cannot do both. They have to choose a direction. And if if we are going to have government schools, I would prefer government schools that promote love of country, racial equality, and the American founding myth. You know, the world I believe in, Stephen, is to, to close out my opinion on this, is that we don't have to choose between the colorblind world or the world of racial essentialism, that there's this other world where you can believe that there are certain things like redlining and the, the failure for us to do reconstruction properly and all the other inequalities that play out to this day, while also not believing that we should rank order kids based on their privilege in elementary schools. You know, that's kind of where I come out on this. But 
But we have a bigger story. I get to go last this time. Uh, this is a very complicated Supreme Court decision, but it's really important. The Biden White House was dealt another serious setback from the Supreme Court last week. In the final decision of this court's term, in the case of West Virginia versus EPA, the court significantly limited the Environmental Protection Agency's power to regulate greenhouse gases. By a vote of six to three, the court agreed with Republican-led states and coal companies that the clean Air Act does not give the EPA expansive power over carbon emissions. The background here is a bit complicated, but essentially back in 2009, the Obama administration supported cap and trade legislation in Congress that failed. They then tried to use existing language in the Clean Air Act to do a cap and trade thing, essentially saying that you know previous regulation had been what they call within the fence line, meaning they could regulate the emissions of power plants one at a time. And they wanted to open it up to say, we're going to regulate the system as a whole to say, all right, if you're one coal power, power plant, instead of saying you just need to decrease your emissions, we could say the system as a whole can maybe shut down a few coal power plants and then add some clean air somewhere else. But each individual plant doesn't necessarily need to, to lower their emissions. That uh, effort was both uh, issued, the Supreme Court issued a hold on that, uh, and Trump anyway reversed it. And then the D.C. Circuit recently told the Biden administration that they could go ahead. It was called the CPP. They could go ahead with this program. And the Biden administration said, we want to issue our own regulations. And they've been working on that. But the Supreme Court stepped in before the Biden administration could do that, saying you do not have the authority to do so, that you are going beyond the language of the statute to do so. Uh, you are both libertarians. I imagine you like this ruling. Yeah. I, just before we before we go any deeper, could I ask you a question on that? Because I keep hearing people talking about both major powers and Chevron deference uh, when they're talking about this. Could you explain kind of those those pieces of terminology so we set terms? Yeah, Chevron deference is something when I was in law school is like there's like whole classes on it, which essentially is saying that the agencies, the executive agencies are given great deference to interpret statutes using their expertise. So when in doubt, if a statute's ambiguous, they can interpret it in a way using quote like their expertise to say what it really means. It's related to the major powers doctrine, which is kind of the opposite and has never been stated in an opinion until this one. Uh, and essentially the major powers doctrine or major questions doctrine is saying there's a couple different versions of it that have shown up since 1980, even though the, the, the exact term hasn't shown up. So going back to 1980, there was this case called the benzene case where Stevens said, uh, Justice Stevens said, in the absence of a clear mandate in the act, the executive branch couldn't act. There were many other cases, the FDA versus Brown and Williamson, which is the tobacco case. They're basically saying that whenever the statute is ambiguous or not super clear, and whenever the agency is trying to do something of, quote, economic and political significance, then they can't exercise that authority unless Congress acts to clarify that law. In the words of Scalia, you can't hide elephants in mouse holes. This is the biggest version of this case, although the vaccine mandates case, the evictions cases are two recent cases where they didn't use the term major questions doctrine, but they were basically doing the same thing. And essentially what's happening here is the statute is kind of broad saying, yep, like you can do this broad thing. Uh, and then they're saying, all right, we're going to you know, fit that metaphorical elephant through that. And there's a huge debate at the Supreme Court. There has been for a while now over whether 
that is an appropriate use of a statute, number one, and two, whether it violates separation of powers, because if you vaguely just say, hey, I'm Congress and I'm delegating broad areas of authority to the executive branch, some people have argued on the court that that is violating the separation of powers. So I'll stop there uh, because I do think it's super complicated, but that's the most significant part of this because it goes beyond what's actually, it goes beyond the, the clean air provisions of this and the emissions provision and actually implicates a lot of federal statutes moving forward. I really keep going back to the fact that people have interpreted this as something other than what it is from a very first principles level, I think it's probably a good thing to rein in some of the power of the administrative state in this manner. I think one of the things that legislators are really in the mode of doing, and we talked about it earlier on this, this is a perennial topic, is passing the buck and acting like it would be unreasonable to expect them to legislate uh, on issues of environmental protection and and. So, so they're acting like the Supreme Court gutting this is in some way the federal government demurring on any sort of environmental agenda whatsoever. We saw Elizabeth Warren greeting this decision by saying, quote, our planet is on fire and this extremist Supreme Court has destroyed the federal government's ability to fight back. This radical Supreme Court is increasingly facing a legitimacy crisis and we can't let them have the last word. Then we had Rashida Taib say, fascist SCOTUS guts the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions, fight climate change. The federal government will be restricted from regulating anything of significance in the absence of a clear congressional directive to do so. Then we saw commentators like Paul Krugman saying, undoing Roe is awful. Kneecapping environmental regulation is existential. This Supreme Court has just come down on the side of civilizational collapse. I think it's really important for these people to understand. And I understand there's some amount of grandstanding and posturing. Many people, not Krugman, thankfully, but the other two are trying to get reelected and are constantly in the currying favor game. But fundamentally, what this does is this reigns in some of the administrative states overreach. And it really does allow Congress to do their actual jobs and decide to pass legislation on environmental issues if they so choose. The thing that you ought not to do is call the Supreme Court, call the judiciary fascist or extremist or engage in any of this other absolutely crazy um, pejorative language that really diminishes and, and erodes the legitimacy of it and frankly means that you're out of words for if and when they actually do something that is legitimately extremist or that is overstepping their power. What they're tasked with is interpreting these narrow questions of law. And what we've seen them do in both of these cases is something that is very much within their purview and defensible uh, from a legal perspective. Yeah, it's awfully telling when in both instances of the Supreme Court running afoul of the left, they call them fascists because the Supreme Court had the gall to give them more power back in their legislative body. So the thing that I want to say about this, this EPA ruling is kind of along the same lines as Liz, which is my my meta concern. It's not a beef with the EPA itself or the even the idea of federal agencies, um, but it's this. So between 1990 and 2005, congressional job approval averaged 42%. Since then, it has averaged half of that, just barely 21%. And its latest rating for congressional approval as of January from Gallup is 18%. This is a loathed branch of government, and it's 
our branch of government being the people. When I was a kid, that number ranged anywhere between 55 to 87% approval in the 90s and early 2000s. I just don't get the impression that people are thinking deeply on where this kind of dynamic is going to take our country. And the answer is a dark place. Like authoritarians of every past failed republic use this weakness, the anger of the people at legislative bodies who can't get stuff done and their ineffectiveness of the government to handle crisis, and they use that to consolidate power and fix problems single-handedly. And that is the underlying narrative that motivates at least my thinking when it comes to this issue. Um, I think it's important that people understand that these agencies, the EPA, OSHA, the CDC, these are all fingers on the hand of the executive branch of government and whoever wins the White House. These are like the would-be tools of the thing that each and every one of us fears. And that is an overreaching government. And I'm in favor of casting the ring back into the fires of Mordor. I want the ring destroyed. I don't want power transferring from Biden to DeSantis to Kamala Harris and back again. So I just, I want to see Congress reassert itself. And this is the kind of decision that's going to put the ball back in their court. I'm of two minds on this. I ultimately don't like this decision. Uh, one thing worth pointing out, Stephen, is that the Supreme Court also has historic low approval right now. It's at 25% according to Gallup's most recent poll. So the public isn't happy with what they're doing either, it seems. Now, one of the things I'm a little bit skeptical about with the government, before I come around to why I agree with the Solicitor General, the Solicitor General, when she was in front of the Supreme Court, acknowledged that even though the Obama administration scrapped this rule, the industry itself wound up voluntarily meeting these standards without any of the regulation. Petitioners are wrong to say that this case implicates a major question. For all their criticisms of the CPP, we know that it wouldn't have had major consequences. The industry achieved the CPP's emission limits a decade ahead of schedule and in the absence of any federal regulation. Given that reality, petitioners asked the court to focus on the nature of the statute in the abstract, not on the particular effects of any particular regulation. But that is never how this court has looked at major questions, and it just reinforces that petitioners are seeking an advisory opinion here. Now, it kind of does both. It argues that this wasn't a significant economic impact, which gets to the major questions doctrine. But then it also gets to the question of, well, then what? why was this regulation even necessary in the first place? So I'm, a, I'm kind of skeptical of the regulation itself, but also skeptical of the standard that the Supreme Court is outlining. And the reason is embedded, I think, in Kagan's dissent, where she says, things change in any industry, especially energy. And when Congress passed the Clean Air Act, they intended the EPA to have the authority to make these calls over time as things change, right? There are different sources of energy and different changes to the planet that evolve over time. And you can't go back to Congress every single year to refine the language. So that's why they like broader language so they don't have to keep updating it. And she said that the court is appointing itself not Congress, the expert agency, by making the calls about what is a significant uh, economic impact and not what's sufficiently specific and what's not. And she used the language. She says that the court is textualist only when it wants to be, which is a point I made last week in the other cases. And this is a quote, get out of text free card, because in, in her argument, and I think the, the majority doesn't disagree with this, the language gives them the authority. It's just not specific enough. So it's like, 
you know, what Roberts is saying is like, yeah, actually, and Gorsuch's concurrence goes even further on this is saying, yeah, actually, the problem here is that they gave too much authority to the EPA, whereas Roberts is kind of towing the line between two. To me, that's incomprehensible. And so it's kind of, I do, I'm kind of with Kagan that this kind of plucked out of thin air. I'm so angered by the EPA and disappointed by them. And I feel as though one of the areas, one of the sectors in which we're seeing far and away the most in innovation that I think will benefit the environment in the long run is the the fact that electric vehicles have really caught on with uh, astonishing speed in the last few years. We see Tesla now, uh, you know, being phased out of subsidies because I think it's after 200,000 units sold, you no longer qualify. And they've had really staggering success. We're seeing newer and newer models of Tesla's released at lower and lower price points. Then we're seeing GM uh, and, and tons of other car makers really competing with them. We're seeing so many enter this game. And so instead of electric vehicles being this, this luxury good, we're really seeing them at affordable prices where you can buy one for $20,000, $25,000 now, which I guess we can argue over whether that's affordable. I think inflation has permanently warped my brain on that front. But I, I, for one, am sort of hopeful for the future of this environmental goodness flourishing in the U.S., and I feel as though the EPA has played very limited role in that. Yeah, I agree with you, especially at the state level, you know, when we talk about housing, which we're about to talk about and with California. Uh, there's definitely, especially at the state level, there are some insane environmental regulations which are being implemented in ways that have nothing to do with the environment. You know, irony number one, as I pointed out, is that the government concedes that in the absence of this regulation, their intended effect happened anyway, which should be really eye-opening. The second irony, though, cuts the other way, which is Kagan in the oral arguments made a really good point, which is, hey, like, if you remember my point about the the uh, inside the fence and outside the fence distinction, the 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 actual proximate uh, results of this decision is going to be, the regulation is going to be the inside the fence regulation, which, to be clear is probably going to be worse for the industry than the outside the fence. Because if you think about it, if you own a coal power plant, what would you rather have? A, a regulation that says, hey, we're going to treat you as a system and you can decrease emissions system-wide, not plant by plant. You could imagine now the Biden administration takes this and says, well, you, you're saying that inside the tent is fine, uh, inside the fence is fine, but outside the tent fence isn't. I'm going to actually force each power plant to decrease emissions on its own, which could potentially be worse for the industry, which is a point that Kagan made in the oral arguments, which to me, that's so odd, these two ironies of this case. Let's close. Liz, we alluded to state environmental regulations. That is part of the issue we've, we've faced here. But I want to turn to a piece you wrote recently in Reason that turned some heads. I saw a retweet from Matt Iglesias. And you argued in this piece that cities like Austin and Miami, which have been successful in luring away Californians, are at risk of replicating many of California's flawed practices. Let's start by examining the people leaving, Liz. How significant is this exodus from California and what can we gather are the reasons why people left in the first place? I think it's a very significant exodus. It's tough because these the same crowd that's leaving, these really high earning, sort of semi-famous tech entrepreneurs, these venture capitalists, these really high up coders, people with influence in that industry you know, they're also really vocal people. They're people with big Twitter followings. They're people who, you know, some of these VCs can easily get on cable news networks. Uh, so it's a little bit of this, this 
not exactly a Streisand effect, but like this is a, a crew that is known to signal boost their problems and have uh, platforms available to do so. But I also, I don't really think it's an exaggerated phenomenon. And I think actually the recent recall results uh, of the Chesa Boudin race provide really good evidence that there is this prevailing sentiment within San Francisco and the Bay Area that quality of life issues are not going away, that they've been really horrible for many years now, and that that coupled with high property prices, uh, the fact that owning or renting a house within the Bay Area is just really unfeasible for a lot of people. I think it's driving people out. Uh, California has a really high tax burden for a lot of these incredibly high earners. I, I understand they're not necessarily the most sympathetic people in the entire world. I think lots of leftists would be like, okay, well, if you're living in a $3 million house and you make you know $350,000 a year, you know, I'm not really feeling all that bad that some of that money's taxed away. But legitimately, people in this country do have the ability to vote with their feet. And we have some states like Texas and Florida that have no state income tax. So although the federal government will necessarily take a little bite out of your earnings, the government of Texas or the government of Florida won't do that. Uh, and so people have decided over the course of the pandemic, I think especially, that they're no longer comfortable being treated as cash cows by Gavin Newsom or by San Francisco city officials, by London Breed. And they want to dip. They want to get their families and take their money and they want to leave. Uh, and so I was really interested in digging into the phenomenon of where they're exiting to and whether those places, Austin and Miami, Florida and Texas, will have any of these same issues that have that you know, these people are running away from in California. Yeah. And I would put Denver on that list. Obviously, Nashville's on that list. Nashville has zero state income taxes too. I think Denver, I interviewed Jared Polis a couple of weeks ago, and he's he's been decreasing taxes, both I think state income taxes and property taxes, even as a Democrat, which I applaud him for doing. Polis seems very interested in but like balanced budget type initiatives. Yes. And so he seems really interested in rejiggering tax rates on a bunch of different levels, whether they be sales tax or income tax, to basically say, hey, we as the state government don't need to collect more money than what we actually need. So we should be discerning with our spending, but we should also, when possible, attempt to return money to the pocketbooks of the people we're taking it from. So I really respect that. And your publication did a good interview with him where they, they asked the question, is he the most progressive governor in America? And to me, he speaks to a sort of progressive libertarianism that I'm going to be writing about in the next few weeks. I, I think of it as Action Park libertarianism, which when I was a kid, there was this, this amusement park near me that like basically was like not super safe in the way that like skiing or surfing, two things. I, I love to surf. Uh, like people who are rich get to take those risks all the time. <laughs> and I think Polis is like this free range parenting uh, advocate too. So he, t he takes all of those things. But I would say, Liz, just as a New Yorker, I think it's also a dynamic here. I interviewed Brian Rosenthal last week from the New York Times about how expensive it is to build subways. They view us here in New York as cash cows too. And it's pretty appalling. And so I could see why some people decide to leave. So Liz, with what you researched here, are you seeing a lot of exporting of California problems to these areas. Because one thing that I, I read in your piece was that there was sort of this account of, of Holly in Austin, Texas, and how she's seeing, you know, two miles east of downtown, 
that you've got all this zoning rewriting going on and massive high rise apartments now like dwarfing little cottage homes and like sitting next to these kind of homes. And I think libertarian market planners tend to look at that and go, great, housing diversity and different kinds of styles. But when I went home to Raleigh, North Carolina, to the research triangle where I'm from and saw all of this Silicon Valley energy development and wealth going to that area, I saw the very same thing and I did not like what I saw. Really <laughs> old cottage style homes with light renovations right next to $3 million modern homes. And I was like, this isn't right. <laughs> well, so, so two things on that front. First of all, I don't think that Californians are exporting their values. I think it's bad progressive policies that already exist in cities like Austin that have made it. So this is this density, these density and zoning struggles are things that the city has been dealing with for many, many years now. And second of all, Holly, my neighborhood where I live, where I'm sitting right now, it's actually interesting because it's, it's not, they're not being able to build high rises in this neighborhood because the land use code rewrite that they had tried to pass through five years ago didn't ever end up passing. And so what you have is downtown and near Rainy Street District, you see these high rises going up and providing some of this uh, typically more luxury housing. So not really missing middle housing, not really housing for families. So you see these high rises going up in that area, but my neighborhood, Holly, remains craftsman bungalow-y uh, with very little new density and very little new development, which makes it so that lots of these houses are pretty modest, you know, maybe 900 square feet, 1,000 square feet, and selling for $1, one million, $1.2 million. Um, and so the, the thing that I struggle with so much with this is... Okay, well, there are trade-offs here, and I think libertarian urbanists are wrong to ignore those trade-offs and those externalities. And with any amount of city planning, it's always there will always be trade-offs that we need to balance, right? How your neighbors live affects your quality of life, as the residents of San Francisco very clearly learned. But at least when I look at Austin's situation, I think there's this sense that liberals and progressives who've lived in the city for a long time have that, you know, they never want their neighborhood to change, that their neighborhood is sort of, they see it as this, this lovely static place. And there's not this embrace of dynamism. There's not this sense of appreciation for, hey, these really moneyed transplants that are coming from San Francisco or from New York, they bring some richness and some vibrancy to the city. And we would rather live in a city where we can reap the rewards of a massive thriving job market and excellent, fascinating, wonderful new restaurateurs coming here. And, and so it's like they, they want to reap some of these rewards, but they don't want to bear any of those costs. And there's this hostility to people coming in. And I'm sort of like, well, wait a second, you call yourselves progressives, you call yourselves welcoming Texans. And yet I see very few of those attributes. And in fact, I see this embrace of this very static mindset and this, this protectionist, property owner pulling the ladder up uh, after them type mindset, where since they are sitting on property values that are maybe 1.2, 1.3, 1.5 million dollars, they don't want any increased density in neighborhoods like mine, because that will make it so God forbid, their home value might be only $900,000. Yeah. And I, I think this gets to our New Yorker conversation last week when we were talking about the cover of the New Yorker, which is we were joking that the one thing that the progressive and the conservative had in common is that they're opposing <laughs> the rezoning or whatever in their neighborhood. And I, I, this is what I used to say to you know my, uh, my ideological opponents who are largely progressives in North Nashville, who for school reasons were opposed to school choice, is that they're some of the most conservative people 
out there in politics. They want to conserve their privilege, whether it's their quality of their their sort of character of their neighborhood or their access to the right school. And they want to live in this Pleasantville-like world, just like the suburban conservative does. They have so much more in common than they think. And um, to me, like there's like this interesting combination of free market deregulation that cuts across, I think, the political divide that maybe brings people like us together, which is like, you know, it's possible that we are a little bit more comfortable with change. I do agree with you, Liz, that there are obviously downsides. Like Nashville's dealing with it now. Like they're pretty good when it comes to deregulation of housing and, and new stuff going up of mixed use and, you know, more high rises and uh, frankly, ugly things that, <laughs> but just house a lot of people. But at the same time, you can't get from one part of the town to the other in the middle of the day because they don't have the yeah. infrastructure for it. And it is a real issue. I do also think there's like, we don't have to operate in the land of extremes, right? We can always recognize these trade-offs and, and attempt to indulge in a sort of balancing act. Like this is something that we could do. You know, in my neighborhood, Holly, we don't have to tear down all of these cute craftsman bungalows that are now have really inflated property values in order to build massive high rises. One of the things we could do is small time uh, zoning tweaks or eliminating things like minimum parking spaces, which are silly because my husband and I use one car for two people and we're getting rid of it soon. So like we don't even need a parking space for our situation. We live a very walking centric life, but you could you could tweak some of these zoning requirements and you could tweak uh, some of the, the city code related to density that would allow, you know, triplexes, threeplexes as they're called, fourplexes to crop up on some of these big lots and allow more people to be packed in to houses that aren't totally out of step with the way the neighborhood looks and don't totally diminish the the quality of life for existing residents, but they do allow more and more people to be packed in. And so we could, and, and some urbanists call this missing middle housing. So not necessarily luxury high rises, but rather units of housing where multiple families live there. And it sort of looks single family-esque, but really three plexes, four plexes, we're fitting three families or four families in there. This would be a, a really reasonable compromise area that for whatever reason, a lot of people aren't into. And then I also, I just want to like turn our attention to the fact that Miami's also having its problems, not necessarily in the realm of housing quite the same way, though I understand some people will kvetch about the gentrification there. I'm not really particularly interested in that because I'm a gentrification truther. I sort of think cities are dynamic places and gentrification is bullshit. <laughs> but one of the problems that Miami really deals with is infrastructure and the fact that the city is run by this like old boys club and there's a lot of corruption. It's very hard to get things done. It's this very complex uh, political machine. But there's also lots of issues with, you know, just environmental decay that happens by nature of where these buildings are located. And the fact that a lot of city regulators are uh, kind of asleep at the job, asleep at the wheel, and a lot of the necessary infrastructure improvements that the city needs in order to be vibrant and have these buildings be long lasting are not being made. And that you know, hits poor people the hardest. So maybe some of these tech dudes who are migrating to Miami will be insulated from that. But I think it's important not to act like Miami is the shining city upon a hill or that Austin is the shining city upon a hill when both areas of, of local governance, you know, there's lots of things that really can and should be improved. Where can people find your piece? What's the name of it? I know they could find it at Reason, but remind us of the title of the piece. It's called California's Competitors. It's a reason. And I think the upshot here that people should take away is that if you're a liberal politician or a huge supporter of liberal politicians, 
a lot of these people are not going to serve as cash cows taking beatings and abuse for, for forever. People ultimately vote with their feet and they decide that quality of life issues uh, are, are pretty major. And so I think it's there's a lesson in this, which is that we should not take constituents for granted. We should pay attention to their problems and wherever possible, you know, I tend to be a believer that the more you drill down to a local level, the more responsive those politicians will be to those people's needs. But it's also important to hold city leaders in check and and to make sure that they're prioritizing the right things and not just replicating the mistakes of other politicians. Well, I want to thank the both of you for being here. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy these conversations. I know our audience does. I've gotten so many messages over the past two weeks uh, about your first appearance. And obviously, we'll be bringing you back. And this is the longest episode we've ever done, just in part because I just wanted to keep talking to you. For our listeners, uh, make sure if you love what you're hearing to go wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating. It really helps us for you to do that. Our last week's episode was uh, the most record-breaking episode we ever had. And the one before that was the, the second most popular episode we've ever had. So this show is growing. So I want to thank everybody for being a fan and for listening to different viewpoints. And we'll be back with our regularly scheduled Tuesday and Thursday shows next week. And we'll see you there. Bye.